Hello there. Thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink, and we're on to the 32nd episode. It's called Social Dominance and the Psychology of Climate Change, which is all very complicated in the media. Uh, for example, I saw on the Weather Channel of all places a headline that said, whatever happened to global warming? And that was because there was a cold front in the south in late spring. And People find this amusing, but it continues to add confusion to whether or not anthropogenic climate change is real. But scientists around the world have stated that this has reached the gold standard of certainty. It's like gravity. Also, I was in New Mexico over the weekend and my family was having dinner in Santa Fe and there was an oxygen bar at the restaurant and we could hear somebody else saying, why would you need an oxygen bar in Santa Fe? We're in Santa Fe, we're in nature. But what they failed to realize was that Santa Fe sits at 7,000 feet, which means the oxygen levels are around 16% compared to 21% at sea level, which is a significant difference. And although the body has mechanisms to adapt to some extent, it can be helpful for some people. And so it speaks to the misunderstanding about how the atmosphere works and that there's more air concentrated around the earth. And we can look up and it just seems like there's endless space. So what's wrong with anything going into the sky? But we don't realize that it takes thousands of years for carbon molecules to disintegrate. And there's a very limited amount of space that we can actually live in. So I try to break down the psychology throughout the episode in terms of individuals, in terms of corporations. For example, if the concrete industry was a country, it'd have the third largest carbon footprint. We're going through a period of time that scientists describe as a sixth mass extinction, and that's because plants and animals and other organic life are disappearing at a rate of about 200 per day, which is 10,000 times the background rate. And so I think some of this is hard to comprehend because we can only think in terms of a human lifespan, but other types of organisms live way longer than we do, and the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. So if you scaled that to 46 years, turn the Earth into a middle-aged woman, well, then in the last four hours, half of her hair has fallen out and she has a fever. And so, of course, there would be cause for alarm. Throughout this episode and beyond, I'd like you to ask yourself this question. Who is guiding progress? A guide means somebody that has been to the destination and returned to show us the way. But what's really guiding us is money, and it is propelled by investors and capitalists and technologists and so on. And I don't know if we are really giving all these developments enough philosophical consideration. Anyways, we as a country continue to dump approximately 15 trillion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. And at some point, it's not going to be possible to plant enough trees to sequester all of that carbon. And so we're going to have to develop technology that not only reduces our carbon emissions, but actually takes carbon out of the atmosphere. I was joking with friends that one day there's probably going to be massive air filters in every city trying to collect this stuff. But the current technology would cost something like $3 trillion annually, which would be the equivalent of building an international space station every 19 days. I mentioned 
the discovery of atomic energy in this episode, but I don't address whether or not nuclear power is a viable alternative to fossil fuels. I don't know enough about it, but I have read that we have about 400 or 500 nuclear power plants around the world, and that would have to increase to about 15,000 to actually supply the entire world with energy. And as it is, there have been nuclear meltdowns, including Fukushima, which was caused by a tsunami. So as more natural disasters increase, that could be a really scary thing to have more nuclear power plants. I don't know exactly how the waste is stored, radioactive waste, and how safe that is long term. And of course, we have serious concerns about who can have access to nuclear power. It seems as though there's also a type of depression when it comes to climate change and global warming, where people have this sense of helplessness and hopelessness. So I started thinking about this in terms of that psychiatric disorder. And one interpretation of depression is known as Beck's cognitive triad, which highlights the self, the environment, and the future. So the individual with depression has very negative thoughts about themselves, like, I'm no good, I'm unlovable, I'm a failure, I'm worthless. And the environment, which could be something like, nobody really understands me, nobody values me, and then the future, I'm never going to get well, I'm never going to feel better, I'm never going to have love, and so on. If you apply this to the collective, well, nobody trusts the whole collective, and when we look at the environment, which would be the world, we see the pollution, we hear the stories, we see the news, we see the ice caps melting, we think about the future, it's bleak. And so it creates a sort of hopelessness where people aren't motivated to change, where we're all stuck. There was a lawyer in the United Kingdom, Polly Higgins, made it her life's work to advocate for the earth. She wanted to be a legal representative for the planet. And she coined a term ecocide, which was a crime if you do extensive damage to the environment and compromise the safety of the people and the survival of ecosystems, that needed to be significantly penalized. It didn't work, but it's something that we really ought to keep thinking about. I've also thought about this in terms of the laws of physics and entropy, which is the amount of disorder in the universe. And this has been implicated in the arrow of time, that time flows the way it does because entropy is increasing, which means we've gone from more order to more chaos. Uh, but Schrodinger, the quantum physicist, said something like, a human being has lower entropy for a while, which means it's more organized. When you look at everything going on in the universe, a human being has a brain and all of these intact systems. But to have low entropy in one area, you have to increase the entropy in the surrounding environment. So when we extend this to communities and cities and countries and the planet. Well, for us to organize ourselves as a species, we take organization from the environment and we push chaos onto the planet. So I thought that was interesting. Also, this episode is coming at a poignant time where we had Hurricane Dorian, one of the strongest storms in all of history in the Atlantic, causing so much devastation in the Bahamas. And sadly, the rapid burning of the Amazon rainforest, I think something like one soccer field a minute is burning. But this is complicated as well. Now, I've seen the World Wildlife Federation's post about comparing this to Notre Dame Cathedral and how 
the world came together and pledged a billion dollars to repair it. And that was my intuition initially as well. Uh, but when I started to think about this deeper, well, the rainforest is not a man-made structure, right? And first of all, the president of Brazil does not want to protect the rainforest. So this is actually intentional burning. There is motivation to increase cattle ranching. Cattle ranching is the leading cause of deforestation in the Amazon. Farming in general is the leading cause of deforestation around the world. But I think this speaks to something a little bit more insidious, and that is social dominance. Social dominance, I get into more deeply in the episode, but it's essentially that societies organize themselves into hierarchies. There is a group at the top with more power, and that happens within countries, it happens between countries. And so I'd like you to consider if the Amazon rainforest was in the United States all these years, and would be almost the entire size of the 48 contiguous states, that's the size of the Amazon basin, would it be intact? Well, we've already logged the entire country. And so Brazil's probably thinking, you did what you wanted with your land. Why are you trying to tell us what to do with our land? And I understand that we need to protect natural spaces like this. So in the future, we could hope for all the world to come together as one. And there could be something like global eminent domain where we recognize these spaces as vital to the health of the planet and countries would get paid for us to protect that in the way that eminent domain worked in the United States. And now this, to a great extent, is why social dominance orientation matters. When people and societies are not equal, there's not a motivation to care for the earth. When people suffer with poverty and inequality, they don't have the freedom to work towards environmental stewardship. They have to work towards the deeper issue. And so social dominance has three components. One is age. Adults have more power than children. And that may seem obvious. What ought to be more disturbing is to really think about the lottery of birth. Every child doesn't have an equal path forward. And to the extent that individuals are okay with that, that actually correlates to people's carbon footprint. Oh, and I mentioned in the episode something about it's not our instinct to adopt. We want to have our own children and mentioned that there's something inherently narcissistic about it. But I'm not trying to criticize people. That applies to me. I have, throughout my life, had many impulses to have children. I've never had the instinct to adopt children. So what I'm saying is I think we need to look at our evolutionary urges and understand how they developed and how they ought to evolve with the changes that have happened in the last 200 years. The second one is sex. Obviously, men have had more power throughout history and they still do. We have to work together to make everybody equal. Now, I'm not promoting communism. I'm not saying that everybody should make the same pay for all the different kinds of work that people do. I'm saying that people should have an equal opportunity towards flourishing. And thirdly, it's arbitrary. Monarchs in Europe, feudal lords, white ethnicity, top of the caste system in India, and so on. And so if social dominance orientation 
is the disease, and we forever organize our societies into hierarchies where all the power and political influence is concentrated at the top, then climate change is actually the symptom. And if it's not runaway greenhouse gases, it will be runaway AI, or runaway genetic engineering, or runaway nuclear proliferation. So that's enough about that for now. I hope you enjoy this episode, and as I said before, please take the time to rate and review it if you can, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, because this impacts how it shows up in searches and whether or not people can have easier access to discovering the show. And I have another Kind Mind Gathering coming up on October 22nd, so if you're in the Chicagoland area, please consider attending. You will be able to find more details on my website, michaeltodfink.com, or on social media at michaeltodfink. But it is October 22nd at 7 p.m. at the Hyatt Regency in Lyle, Illinois. So thank you once again. Please share this with family and friends. I think it's much easier to say, hey, what do you think about this? And if I sound like I'm criticizing people, I don't mean to. I'm really trying to promote critical thinking and open dialogue. And I welcome your feedback. So please feel free to reach out to me to share your feedback and to make further suggestions. And now on to the episode. So a little over 10 years ago, in 2008, in the summer, the Giving Tree Band and I started to produce our second album in a unique way. We had been planning for some months and years how to create an album without producing any carbon pollution. So we didn't want to just make a carbon neutral album, which would have meant that whatever pollution we use, we would offset by investing in some renewable energy. But that we didn't even want to create the pollution to begin with. So it took some thinking, and we eventually partnered with a center in Wisconsin called the Aldo Leopold Legacy Center, named after conservationist in Wisconsin, Aldo Leopold. He has a very well-known book in the field of conservation and ecology called the Sand County Almanac. We arranged for our band to be there for one month and to use a beautiful meeting room in their space so that our equipment could be powered by their renewable energy. At the time, this building was considered the greenest in the world. It produced way more energy than it could use from its solar panels and from the geothermal system beneath the building. And there were many other beautiful features about that location. Before we set out to go there, we thought, well, it doesn't really make sense to record there during the week, come home at night or go to a hotel. They didn't have accommodations for us there or drive back on the weekend and create a bunch of pollution that way when we're trying to make this special project. So we camped in the closest spot, which was Mirror Lake State Park, but it was 10 miles away. That meant a 20 mile commute by bicycle every day. And I hadn't rode a bike since I was a kid. And I didn't train for this. We just jumped into it. And then we thought, well, 
what else might we be doing that is unnecessary during this month? So we had a farm donate the food to us that we were going to eat ahead of time. So we had all this fresh produce locally and we just ate salads and whatnot in the campground. And we rode our bike back and forth over 500 miles to make this album. That's not the point of the story though. The point is in this meeting room where we were recording was a carbon meter. So it could give you the parts per million inside of that room. What that means is for every million molecules of air, how many of them are carbon dioxide? And the reason why this was significant was because for us to record, we had to shut off the air and close the windows. Otherwise, we'd be hearing the sound of people talking in the other rooms and it just wouldn't work at all. We had to get as much quiet as possible. There was a deal with the center that their guests could come in, could sit and observe what we were doing. So could the press. We had media come from all over the world, from as far as Germany and some other European countries. So we had a period of time where we would let the guests in. They sat down, windows close, air goes off, the recording starts, and they have to be silent. First time we did this, we're running through a take, and as soon as we finish, the guests immediately start clapping as if it was a performance. And we have some, well, you know, Thank you for appreciating what we're doing here, but we have to do this over now <laughs> because there's going to be a bunch of clapping on that part of the song. So anyways, when you turn all that off and you close the windows and it's in the summer in Wisconsin, it quickly starts heating up, right? But we figured out at what point the meter would be at a number that was too high. And so the normal parts per million might have been around something like 300, maybe 250, something like that. And it wasn't until after it goes over a thousand parts per million that you start feeling uncomfortable, not just because of heat, but you can't really breathe well and it's affecting your thinking process. And we would say to someone, you'd be responsible for letting us know when it goes over 800 parts per million, someone in the band. But inevitably we would forget because our focus is not on that. Our focus is on making the music. Years later afterwards, now that I'm reflecting on it, I realize that this is a pretty good metaphor for the psychology of climate change. We have something else that we're trying to do. We know that's going on, but it's not yet an immediate threat to us. So we know we have to keep checking and we know we have to overall make changes but it's not at that threshold yet. And it was always too late for us in that room, which was interesting. Too late means we're already feeling uncomfortable, we're already breathing bad air and so on. And then what do we do? We open the windows and turn on the air. For the planet, we're not gonna be able to open the windows and let all the gases out into outer space. There's no window to open. This is a really good metaphor because our exhaling was what was polluting the room. And you might wonder, does human exhalation of CO2 actually pollute the atmosphere? Not really. In a sense, yes, but in another sense, no, because where does our CO2 come from? It comes from the plants that we consume. 
the plants are taking the CO2 from the air, we eat the plants or eat the animals that eat the plants, and then we exhale the CO2 back in the air and the plants consume it. It forms a natural cycle. The greenhouse gases that are contributing to climate change are coming out of the ground and they can't go back into the ground. In the case of the recording room for us, we're bringing CO2 that did not exist in that environment. The plants are outside of the room and the pollution is going into the room. So it's a metaphor for climate change. What are greenhouse gases? Greenhouse gases are carbon dioxide, methane, even water vapor. So this notion that, oh, that plant is just putting water vapor into the air and it's not pollution is not entirely true because water vapor contributes to the greenhouse effect. So those gases are called greenhouse gases, and I'm not sure that that's a good name for them because those gases aren't produced in a greenhouse. Those gases produce a greenhouse effect. So to understand this a little bit more clearly, if we think of the atmosphere, we look up at the sky and you see stars at night. So it just seems like the atmosphere is massive. And whatever goes into the air is eventually just going to disappear. But the reality is, the thickness of the air is mostly right here near sea level. And then it quickly starts to dissipate until 300 miles or so when it merges into outer space. And the habitable region of the atmosphere for us, where there's actually enough air to breathe, it starts to disappear after about 10,000 feet. There's not many communities that live above 10,000 feet. So you think about driving a car on a freeway up towards the moon. In a couple minutes, you're out. You're out of the habitable zone. And that's where most of the gas is, close to the Earth. And then it thins out. And our layer is the troposphere. And it's only like 4 to 12 miles. But we can't see it. And then there's thinner and thinner layers until merges with space. Imagine if we could actually see that layer, or if there was a, like a glass cover, like a snow globe, and we saw, oh, we only have this much space to work with. And then imagine if CO2 wasn't invisible and odorless, you could see it like soot. Soot is carbon that has the particulate in it. And so when there's smog, people don't like it and they want to make changes to eliminate that kind of pollution because it blocks your ability to see the sunset and so on. So imagine if the gases actually were visible and how that would change. And if we could actually see where our part of the atmosphere ends, and then it wouldn't seem like this endless space that we could use. Because the way it's worked until now is that space is essentially an open sewer. And it's not an endless space. It has a cap because the Earth is going to hold these gases just a few miles around the Earth like an aura. For the past 800,000 years, that parts per million has been around 250. And in the last 200 years, it's risen to 411. And it's going to keep on increasing. There's a threshold where it may not be reversible. Some things are already not reversible. And part of this is because of what happens as the planet heats, even one, two degrees Celsius. So as ice caps melt and glaciers melt, some 
people tried to confuse the public by saying, if you melt an ice cube in a glass of water, it doesn't raise the level of water. But that's not actually all that's happening. The glaciers are on land. Greenland has so much of its landmass covered by glaciers. When that melts, it's going to go into the ocean. So that ice is not in the water yet. It's on top of land and it's going to flow into water. Now, melting and freezing are asymmetrical. If warming the planet one degree melts the ice caps, you can't cool it down one degree and somehow the water will come out of the oceans and go back onto glaciers. So that asymmetry is a problem and contributes to the irreversible changes attributed to climate change. So tonight, I'd like to talk not so much about all this science, because I'm not a scientist, but more about how we think about these things. And there's many different ways to interpret what's going on, and there's many confusing messages. But even in my work in counseling and, and being around other clinicians, I had said in the past, we typically don't get people coming to us whose primary complaint is climate change. But we are seeing more, more people now starting to include that in reasons why they're worried. And even couples in therapy not sure about whether or not it's moral to have children. And I think therapists don't really know what to make of eco-anxiety, and this is probably only going to increase. So it's worth talking about the psychology of some of this so that we can feel more informed. But more importantly, like so many other meetings that we have here, this is just one more thing that's taboo in the society. 65 to 70% of Americans never or rarely talk about this with anyone just like death before and other, and other topics that we've brought up together. But 75 to 80% of Americans accept that this is a problem. And it's not compatible with the people who represent us in Congress. 150 Congress people deny climate change. And so that doesn't really reflect who they represent. And I don't even have to get into which politics or anything like that. But I don't think we should be using the language of believing in climate change. And I don't think we should call people who don't believe in it climate deniers because that continues to drive the narrative that we're not sure if there's anything even to be concerned about. We talk about whether or not people believe there's extraterrestrial life because none of us can show an extraterrestrial life right now or Bigfoot or whatever. So when you talk about whether or not people believe in something, that leads people to assume that it's not clear if that thing is real or not. So I think the better way to understand this, especially in terms of politics, is who are the people that act on this and who don't? Who vote for legislation or who draft legislation that supports protecting the people and protecting the air quality and protecting the environment, and who doesn't? It doesn't matter what they believe, because all we have to do is look at the IPCC reports. The International or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is essentially a worldwide committee of thousands of experts that have no political agenda, and they come together and they study and analyze thousands and thousands of research reports, and then they summarize it for the public. And if you think about it, 
what who stands to gain by promoting environmental changes and promoting taking care of our future? Well, everybody stands to gain. But who stands to gain by promoting that this is not really happening or by sowing seeds of doubt? Well, those forces that are creating the pollution. And so this is, I think, important to be able to separate in our minds. And it's very similar to cigarette smoking, which took about 60 years just to be able to let people know the truth. They knew in the 20s that it leads to cancer, but those companies hired scientists to sow seeds of doubt. You can still find reports and articles that said things like, there's no substantial evidence that suggests being in an environment where there's secondhand smoke can be hazardous to your health. But we know that's not true. Those same scientists who were hired by the tobacco industry to, to say that were also hired by the fossil fuel industry to appear in media outlets and in interviews to sow seeds of doubt. I can't remember their names, but that doesn't matter. But you could look it up and, and find that to be true. So what we're, what we're dealing with here is a, a powerful lobbying faction where $10 for uh, anti-environmentalism is spent for every dollar that's spent for, for the environment. So it's impossible to compete with that narrative. So people have to simply educate themselves and actually find how to understand the science. Now, that this is happening and that it, the parts per million has gone from 250 to 411 and rising for the first time in 800,000 years, that's a fact. And it only takes high school physics or high school chemistry to understand it, to do your own experiment like we did at the Aldo Leopold Legacy Center, to know it, not to believe it, just to know how it works. And anyways, why is this happening and what to do about it is very complicated because there's not an easy way to understand its causes. But I want to look at a, a, a few tonight and reflect on them. So one way to think about this is that people create climate change. So I mentioned before that you can't see it. So when we think about ordinary threats, you can usually perceive them. There's a bear and we react and do something. But CO2 is invisible. And then secondly, threats are responded to when we understand that it's an enemy. Climate change is not really an enemy, it's collective behavior. Could you imagine if we knew for a fact climate change was caused by ISIS? There, <laughs> ISIS is polluting the environment, it's warming the planet, it's melting the ice caps, leading to sea levels rising, and there's going to be more and more hurricanes and wildfires and flooding and so on. Should we do something about it? <laughs> well, that would be easy to get people to rally together because of the psychology of a common enemy. Precedent. There's no historical precedent. Like war. If we knew there was a, a, a threat of war, people could mobilize because we have seen it before and we know what that means. And then we could say, well, this is because of corporations. There are like 26 million corporations, I think in, I don't know if it's in the world or in the United States, 100 
are responsible for 70% of the pollution, just 100. And so some people propose to do a carbon tax on those companies, which essentially means you charge them for the pollution. Because what was happening to begin with was something that was never free. Like if I take this out of the ground and pollute my neighbors, I can make a profit now. When you empty the waste into the sky, it's like putting it into a river that flows into someone else's yard, into someone else's drinking water. That's what's happened. We've taken the oil out of the ground, polluted the sky, and it goes over and it creates super cyclones in India. In 1999, the super cyclone in Orissa, India killed 10,000 people and displaced about 2 million from their homes. And these disasters, these natural disasters, were like once in a thousand year disasters. The Superstorm Sandy and Hurricane Katrina, those were like once in 500 year storms. So one degree temperature increase is not like, oh, well, instead of it being 80 degrees, it'll be 81 degrees today. What's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal because it moves the whole bell curve over. Those extreme events that were on the perimeter now become more likely to occur. Those once in a thousand become once in a hundred years. Those once in a hundred years become one in five years and so on. And so corporations could be one way to think of this. And if you tax them, that's like saying, you took something and you polluted somebody else and you profited. You have to pay for that. You have to pay for the damage that you're doing to the environment. So they tax. But where should that money go? That's the confusing part. Does it just go to the government? Well, some people have proposed it goes back to the people. Just give it to people. But this is also a problem because as people's income increases, so does their emissions. And that's a problem too, because everybody needs more income. Well, most of us need more income, but if we get more income, we'll contribute more to climate change. So that's a conundrum. Also, if you tax the companies, all they're going to do is charge us more so that we'll have to pay for their tax. And yes, that might reduce our consumption then because it costs more, but they'll still be doing what they do and um, we'll just be angry that we're punished for the energy that they create for us. Or perhaps that carbon tax could go back to the people in the form of credits. So it's not just cash, but ways to make the community more environmentally sound. Like credits towards renewable energy for your home, lighting, transportation that is electric or something like that. I don't know. But then the other way to think about this is the people are more responsible. I think consuming meat contributes to more greenhouse gases than all transportation combined. I don't know if you know that. And even though this education is getting disseminated more widely, it's doing nothing to reduce meat consumption. The average North American consumes 200 pounds of meat annually, which is significantly higher than 25 years ago and 50 years ago and so on. They expect meat consumption to double by 2050. And as it is right now, livestock account for something like 30% of the land in the world, which is the 
number one driver of deforestation, which is needed to be able to sequester CO2 out of the atmosphere and put it back into the earth. But it's highly unlikely that you can get people to just stop eating meat because nothing seems to be working. But it's one simple way that we could contribute on an individual level. What about different forms of meat? So some people are working on plant-based meat. A burger was never like meat to me. It's not like I was growing up eating burgers going, this is a nice looking cow and this hot dog is a nice looking, you know, whatever. The only thing that looked like an animal to me was sardines out of the can. <laughs> and I didn't want to eat that. <laughs> but making an animal into a patty never immediately meant animal to me as a little kid. So a patty is a patty. But the meat in a patty is essentially lipids and amino acids and water and so on. And it's conceivable that all you have to do is manipulate molecules and get it to be like that. But people have to get it out of their head that it needs to be an animal. Because what do we mean by that? That it had to be living and it had to be killed before I can eat it? No, because most people don't like slaughterhouses and factory farms. Most people don't want to think about that, it's disturbing. But factory farms account for 95% of the meat. And then even if we produced more grass-fed and humanely grown meat, all that means is there has to be more deforestation to make enough land for the livestock to then graze and be organic. So people have to open up to the idea that plant-based meat has got to be okay in the future. And I think those people producing it don't even need to call it plant meat. It's just a burger. If it, the question is, does it taste good enough for you or not? That should be those people's jobs, is to make sure it's just good. And it shouldn't matter where it comes. Because as it is now, people eat despite how it's produced, not because of how it's produced. So what does it matter if it's plant-based or lab-produced? It's disturbing also for people to think of eating meat that is just grown from a lab that was never an animal that were only cells grown in petri dishes and grown quickly. But the logic here is it reduces the need for all of the land and all of the suffering. And so I don't eat meat, so it's not an issue for me, but you would rather the animal be killed and, and need so much resources before we could consume it. Because one pound of beef requires 5,000 gallons of water. The most energy efficient is chicken, nine calories, to get one calorie. So everything times nine. And that's still not very efficient. Six weeks to get a chicken. Six days to get it in the lab. So these are things that people collectively are going to have to think about psychologically. Because how will we sustain that demand? How can the population keep growing and meat consumption keep growing? 96% of Americans consume meat. And the other parts of the world are just getting on board, like China. I think China just surpassed the United States because they were more plant-based. And same with India. And those are the two largest populations in the world. And as those countries continue to modernize, they're just going to contribute to this. Corporations, people. And then we can think about, well, 
what started all this in the first place? And what else contributes to why people don't accept this? And I think maybe religion ha has something to do with it. If this one line in the Old Testament, God gave man dominion over the earth, if that was just translated as stewardship, might we have been in a different position? Because people exploiting the earth have felt that they're on good religious footing. This is our land uh, given to us by God to do it with what we want. When we come together and talk about these things, it turns out that's what drives collective change the most. What's happening in your families, in your neighborhood? There was a study done of 4,000 people. They were divided into groups of 1,000, so four groups. And they were each asked to reduce their energy consumption in their homes for four different reasons. Group one was asked to reduce it for some time because this is good for the environment. This is green. Then a second group was told, this is good for your children and grandchildren. By you doing your part, you're contributing to a better world for your future family. The third was told that it will save you money. And the fourth was told that you pollute more than your neighbors. The last group made the most change and for the longest duration. Basically it comes down to what are people doing around me? So if we could do that, we could create a shift where it's not cool to do these things that aren't helping. And it feels uncomfortable. So yes, if more people could make these changes and then it, it shifts, it creates a movement. And it doesn't need a ton of people, it just needs one group that's affecting the people around them and then affecting the people around them. So I think it will be important to talk about this when we go home, because I don't have all the answers, that's why I'm asking you. And then share the podcast with people so you're not preaching, you're just saying, I find this interesting, what do you think? So we're breaking down taboos and we can make it normal to be pro-environmental. But here is a tricky thing, that as a person's income increases, so does their self-identity as being eco-conscious or green but their pollution increases. So what, exactly. Because all the things that really contribute to climate change, the travel and consumption, that increases. It essentially amounts to virtue signaling goes up, green virtue signaling goes up, but the real important behaviors get worse. This speaks to something much more insidious, and that is called social dominance orientation. In the 90s, psychologists at UCLA developed a theory that was almost like a unified field theory of human social behavior. It essentially states that humanity organizes itself in a type of hierarchy and it has a couple universal features and one alternating feature. And that accounts for racism, sexism, and so many other forms of discrimination. So the first one is age. And there's always what's called a hegemonic group in every society on the planet in history. A hegemonic group means the one that holds more power and political influence. So the first one is age, which means adults have more power than children. 
okay? Pretty obvious. But it doesn't have to mean that adults take and manipulate and dominate children. And in some parts of the world, and here to some extent, it does mean that. Think about how people raise their kids. They try to make them like them. They want their own kids as opposed to adopting kids. I think it's totally normal, but just think about that for a moment. There's already a life. It could have a better life. He or she could have a better life. But I would rather there be life that comes from me because it will be more like me. Right? So there's, there is something like inherently narcissistic about it. And I'm not saying don't have children. I'm just saying to think about how this formula works. There's something about controlling that, controlling children. And then the second one is sex. In almost every single civilization in human history, men have more power than women. And it's still the case. Men make more. They occupy more positions of power. It's still wrong. It's still there. You're absolutely right. Except for select indigenous populations. And then the third one, domain three, is arbitrary. So you can probably think of some arbitrary hegemonic groups. Royalty. What is royalty? Because of their blood, they're monarchs. They have more power. Born into it. Skin color. Historically, throughout United States history, skin color gave you certain power. Still does in certain ways maybe a little bit more subversive, but it still exists. Also, caste. If you're in the top caste in India, it doesn't necessarily mean you look in a particular way. You're just born into the caste that you're born into. And if you rejected caste system altogether, you were outcast. That's where we get outcast from. No, I don't want to participate in that. Well, if you're an outcast, you then were untouchable. Untouchable means you're worse than the bottom cast. So that's how that evolved. So it's interesting then, they have a scale, they developed a scale at UCLA called social dominance orientation, which just simply asks questions to subjects about their level of acceptance of social dominance. And you'd be surprised. So I encourage you to look this up and take it because There are some things that are very obvious. A statement like, some groups of people are just inferior to others. And then you rate how much you agree with that. And so some things for us may seem like we obviously disagree with that. But there are some subtle ones. Like this one. It's okay for some groups of people to have a better chance at life than others. Now we might think, I disagree with that. But that's not how people practice. That's not how people live. People don't want their property taxes to go where the school in the country needs it the most. Right? So in in theory, we think we care about everybody. We want everybody to have equal shot. But data shows it's not that way. And there are sentiments that are pervasive from the beginning of America. Land of opportunity. Everybody has equal chance to get ahead. But the data does not show that to be true at all. Leaving like 1% aside and the the billionaire class aside, if you just talk about the top 20%, the top quintile, 
less than 4% of the bottom quintile will ever go to the top quintile. Then it's just what is called in social dominance theory, a legitimizing myth. There's a legitimizing myth in the caste system and in so many other places where there's social imbalance. So in our country, so much so right now, it's wealth inequality. And it's hard to see, but that hegemonic group has political influence. There's not an equal amount of poor people in Congress as there are rich people, right? So the whole point here is then this can help explain climate change. Because once you already have social dominance, then you have the motivation to exploit the earth. And like someone said, in some indigenous populations, this was not the case. And there was no chance they were going to exploit the earth. So it could be thought of, and what I'm trying to share and promote with people is that climate change is the symptom of social dominance. And we understand that an egalitarian society would be nice, but most people don't agree about implementing measures that would force it because that creates another type of chaos. But maybe part of spiritual evolution is growing oneself so they feel that instinctively, that for me to take from others creates an imbalance for me because I'm connected to the environment. So this is partly a lack of vision on the individual's part. It's a, almost a, uh, a feature of egotism that I can't see how others and the environment is connected to me. And so we're in this crisis. Now people think what's going on somewhere else, extreme poverty in another part of the world, has little to do with me and there's nothing I can do about it. It's not my responsibility. But if you think about a mind that could be closed off to all social impression, you put somebody in a deprivation tank permanently. Well, it's one thing to do like a one hour float. That feels pretty cool. But if you knew you were going to be permanently prevented from having input, real quickly, the mind will start to disintegrate. Which means that the mind is actually sustained by the impressions. No impressions, no mind. So it seems outside and separate, but it is actually the very thing keeping the mind going. And so this idea that there's an inside, outside, near, far, and so on, is a little bit of an illusion. To really have some hope for this to be dealt with probably is going to come down to how many people can understand what an egalitarian society would look like and how could we get there without forcing it through communism. Because China is the number one polluter on the planet as a country. The three biggest polluters, China, India, USA, they have probably the most social imbalance the most social inequality. We think we're land of equality, but it's not true in practice. Like I said, people can't move out of their, their groups. And we talk about it as classes. You know, the politicians will talk about tonight, we'll talk about the middle class. Could you imagine if they called it the middle caste? Maybe it would wake, wake people up, you know? Because there is a legitimizing myth in our country that you can just work hard 
and everybody can get ahead. As if being born in an orphanage doesn't put you at a disadvantage. All you got to do is come out of that and you'll just think clearly, work hard, and you'll catch up to where people who started in an affluent home will be. No? And, and the point is, if we don't work on that, there will always be the incentive to exploit the earth. And it doesn't just exist among people in a culture, it exists between the cultures, between the countries. It's very difficult to bring India and China to the negotiation table and say, you guys got to slow it down, you passed us. And they're going to say, but you've already got the atomic weapons and all the power. And now you want us to stop our carbon emissions before we get to where you are? That's pretty convenient for you guys to say. Right? So there's also an imbalance already among the countries. But that being the case, still the countries doing the best are the most egalitarian. Finland, Norway, Denmark, where there's the most equality, they're making the best uh, effort to change this stuff. Back when atomic energy was created during the Manhattan Project, they asked Niels Bohr to guide those scientists, and he was a man of high principles. He was different than Einstein in the sense that he understood quantum theory, but his life wasn't a mess. You know, like uh, Einstein's married to his cousin and probably stole ideas from his first wife and chaotic personal life, right? Niels Bohr had a beautiful family, three kids. Some of his kids went on to win Nobel Prizes as well. The whole community came to Niels Bohr would sit with him and he would guide entire groups of people, not just in science, but how to live. And when they asked for him to advise the Manhattan Project, he said, yes, but we have to make sure all the allied powers have access to the atomic discoveries. And U.S. said no, and they kicked him out. But the point here was that what the U.S. was created was another hegemonic group. We'll have the atomic power, and that will motivate everyone else then to produce atomic energy, to do whatever they have to do to exploit the, the planet, to catch up with the hegemonic group. You see? So social dominance actually promotes climate change, and we think about it as the problem, but I'm saying it might be the symptom. And so I, I would just like us to reflect on some of that, and I encourage you to look at this scale, social dominance orientation, and see some of the difficult ones in there. They're subtle. And to think about what would it take to evolve and to share this with other, other people. That's more realistic than getting people to stop enjoying phones and uh, traveling and eating what they want to eat. Because it's not that we have to give up the things we love, I don't think. It's that we have to stop exploiting people. We have to stop making gains on the planet at the expense of people who are disadvantaged. And it takes a certain kind of mind to be able to contemplate this deep enough and to care about those things. We might say, well, why does this even matter? And it's hard for it to matter to people because it's hard to think about your grandchildren. And probably your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will not think about you. How much do you think about your 16 great-great-grandparents. 
I mean, I know like one of them. So when we think we'll have children and they'll carry on our legacy, but in three, four generations, they won't even know you. you know? So we have a hard time thinking about them. We have a hard time thinking about our future self. One way to think of this is a collective addiction to fossil fuels. Person with addiction may have three DUIs, but will still get in the car while intoxicated. That's what's happening on a collective level. You could say it's something like an addiction. And therefore, we can't use the logic of think of the future. Nobody cares about the future. I mean, we don't even care about our own future, we're, you know, of our own life, not our grandchildren. Like, we will eat this thing today and we'll deal with it tomorrow. <laughs> you know, we'll gain the weight today and we'll go to the gym some other time. So that's going to be difficult, I think. And then, I guess, another question is, is it necessary to preserve the earth? And I say that because the earth is destined to die, regardless. The sun will heat up. The sun will eventually become a red giant and its surface will extend past the orbit of Mars. It has to die. So why does it even matter? Well, we know that we're going to die, but we still think health is important. Just because we're going to die in less than 100 years doesn't mean that we destroy our life today. Some people do, but it seems like healthy, wise people decide, no, it's important to preserve whatever I have here for as long as I have. But some people think that this is all about surviving long enough to get off the planet. Because if we are the only intelligent life in the universe, then it would be a shame for it to die out just because we couldn't get our act together at this moment. In 200 years, this has happened since the Industrial Revolution, but something else started from the Agricultural Revolution. From 12,000 years ago, when we started to become stable in a place, that's when things started to shift. Hunter-gatherers actually lived longer than the people after the, that agricultural shift. If the top 10% of humans reduced their behavior just to the average European, we would eliminate all emissions by like 35%, which is way beyond like Paris Climate Agreement, things like that. So they're not going to do that because for them, it's like in a, that would be like living an ascetic life. <laughs> the system has to convert, but there's not an incentive for the powers at the top to do that. They don't represent the interest of the whole. More importantly is creating the demand for the systems to change because, like you said, with solar panels being expensive and things like that, but we pollute more than people in other countries by doing nothing, just being here in this room, right? Because <laughs> now we're all responsible for the energy that's being produced in this room because it's partially being produced for us. So we're contributing in that way. So there are some things that we just can't avoid until the people in power listen and make changes and force the industries to change. And we're running out of time because we're getting to a point where we could cover all the land with forest and it can't sequester the carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere. 
So the IPCC says there's less than 12 years to make massive changes to prevent the Earth from warming two degrees Celsius. Again, if that doesn't quite make sense, you can think of the human body. If the human body elevates three degrees, it's not just like enjoying a warmer day, right? It leads to all kinds of trouble. What we also need to look at, and you can easily find online, where the representatives get their campaign contributions. It seems very simple to me that if the fossil fuel industry invests in your election, you have a conflict of interest to vote on energy legislation. The lobbyists can essentially write the laws, and that has to change. So we need to be looking at, you can actually find out how much representatives are taking from the energy industry. And that just cannot be okay for people anymore. And there are some that have been there a very long time, and they pretty much work for the fossil fuel industry. And I'm not saying that you can't work for fossil fuel industry. The fossil fuel industry needs to have the incentive to change directions. But they're more worried about their existential crisis. If their way of making energy doesn't fit the paradigm anymore, then they're afraid of disappearing altogether. So of course they're going to delay things. Eco-guilt is not going to do much. And I think what we really need to work on is being more compassionate. I think we actually need to meditate more, practice mindfulness, and be more kind and loving to each other because that will help us wake up to, I think, the deeper issues about how we treat each other and what we have allowed to be okay. You know, like something as simple as like the, the violence in Chicago. It's not on anybody's agenda, really. But could you imagine if that amount of homicide happened in Naperville annually? It'd probably be an international crisis. I did a little research with my mom once, and I found that there have been more homicides in Chicago in the 21st century than all of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But it's framed differently, obviously, because the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is very big. It has deep implications, political, uh, spiritual, religious, and so on. But if you just bring it down to like, what children are dealing with in one city in America, why is that okay? So, yeah, I think if we work on these things, it would surprisingly lead us to the ability to cooperate. That's the challenge because climate change, you're right, as you said, like all the recycling a person can do and a city can do is not going to change what's coming out of the ground and going into the air. Uh, but yes, but millions of people coming together and realizing that we're not taking care of each other. So that's why I said I think this great turning isn't going to just come with some great technological answer. You know, like some people think God is going to save us. That's almost as blind as saying technology is going to save us. There's a bystander effect where everybody collectively kind of goes, I think something's going to happen. I think someone will figure something out. But that's what everybody's saying. Like I said in the beginning, I don't know what the solution is. I think, though, that we're overlooking the social dominance piece. I think that we don't see climate change as a symptom of something much more insidious. And I think if you can share this message, we could quickly reach 
enough people where it can make a difference in how people think about voting for their local representatives and listening for them to talk about what their plans are for reducing mass inequality and supporting overall human flourishing. And so it, I think it will be easier if we just say, hey, check this out and let me know what you think so we can keep the conversation going. I think that's the most important thing. Don't let this become taboo again just because it usually leads to people arguing. That is what people try to do. Turn it into a debate. And I'm willing to listen and I will put down whatever I think. I will put down social dominance theory. I think the point is we have to learn the art of conversation. A discussion comes from this root word cushion. Concussion, percussion, it means to strike. So what we need more is dialogue where people lay down their beliefs and open their minds and be ready to try on something new. Otherwise, it's just a debate. It's just a fight and we won't really get very far.